don't fall in love with your metrics. Don't, um, you know, measure everything. Be, be aware that, that you, you need to, uh, to track how stuff goes, but don't fall in love with, with anything you measure because there's a big danger there. Uh, the economist called it good heart's love. Welcome, welcome, welcome. And I'm even going to say bienvenue today um, because it is the start of season three of Afternoon Tea. And I am super excited. I mean, really, really, really excited because we have a great guest to start out the show today um, with Philippe Baudouin. Um, Philippe, before, before we get into this, let me read all about a little introduction, if you please. Philippe Baudouin is a venture scientist constantly looking for ideas that can improve society. In 2020, he co-founded Waverly where he and his team are building a discovery engine for our increasingly diverse social and content landscapes. Waverly relies on natural language and empathic, empathic AI to let users connect with their true aspirations. Before that, in 2016, Philippe co-founded Element AI, a world leader in enterprise AI. Philippe holds a PhD from the University of Montreal, was a researcher at the University of British Columbia, and spent the last 20 years honing his technical and leadership skills, including half a decade at Google. Philippe, thank you so much. Welcome to the show today. Thanks a lot. It is, it is honestly very exciting to be speaking with you. Um, so first off, you go from, from speaking with lonely old me right to doing a TED Talk uh, tonight. Um, that's fantastic. Yeah, Tell it's... Me a little it's... Bit about who do you talk about there? Yeah, it's a TEDx talk. So I think, yeah, you know, it's a, the, the, the little broader, but yeah, super fun stuff. I'm doing that at the Collège Brébeuf here in uh, Montreal. And uh, I'm going to be talking about algorithms, especially how it affects, uh, you know, students these days. They're everywhere. And um, yeah, and maybe more interestingly, how can we build them better, which is what Waverly is all about, actually. Fantastic, fantastic. Well, I'm excited to learn more. Well, you know, you just you just led me right into that. Tell me, tell me, what's the origin story of Waverly then? Uh, it's uh yeah, it's a long story. When I was at Google, which was, I mean, six, seven years ago now, um, I used to work on Google Chrome, and Google Chrome has this front page. Whenever you open it, you get there and it presents a bunch of things like uh the most visited links and stuff like that. But we really conceived it as a recommendation system. What should we recommend? people who open Chrome. Um, and, you know, as I started building that, natural questions emerged like, hey, what do we measure in order to decide what to put there? And, and the more I, I looked into these questions, the more I realized that, whoa, we had a lot of power. Whatever we put there gets clicked like a hundred more times than things that we wouldn't put there. And um, it just made me realize how important these questions were. But at the same time, I had no idea how, how to, uh, to do this differently. The way these things work essentially is they measure how you behave when you use the software. They have an objective in mind, you know, increase the number of clicks or keep you in, on the app as long as possible. And then they take actions in order to achieve that objective. And these actions are, you know, what do I put up there on the screen? What do I put in your newsfeed if you're talking Facebook and things like that? And, and at that point, I was like, this is going to lead us down a pretty bad path because right now what we're looking at, what we're measuring is very shallow. It, it's a very shallow representation of who people are. If we keep down that path, we'll end up somewhere bad. And I think <laughs> the year since then gave me, uh, like, proved me right. You know, if you look at uh, 
what what Facebook has, you know, the issues with uh, with social media and uh, the the last elections in the U.S. But it's everywhere. You see it everywhere. Um, and so, yeah, I think two years ago, since I had been doing a lot more AI through Element AI, I realized that there might be a different way of doing these things. Essentially, instead of looking at how people behave when they use the app, we could start asking them, asking them, how would you like a recommendation engine to behave or what would you like it to do? And because AI has, has advanced so much in natural language understanding, we could take these answer and build custom algorithms, custom recommendation system based on what people say they want. So yeah, that's how Waverly started. I decided this would be my next, uh, my, my next adventure after Element AI. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and there I was, I launched it, uh, found a really great uh, founding team, raised, uh, raised a bit of pre-seed money, and we've been building that for the last uh, year and a half. Well, very exciting, very exciting. So how many, how many people is on the founding team, like the, the, the core founders? Yeah, there's three of us. Uh, there's okay. uh, there's uh, Michael Cronish, who was a VP at Vice. Uh, there's Philippe Gagnon, who spent 20 years at Ubisoft uh, acting as a CTO. And myself uh, with with the AI chops and uh, you know oh, just cool. doing the rounds, shaking hands, that kind of stuff. <laughs> so, so it's a very senior team. So, so you're doing you're doing the, the technical and the business. Like how how does how does that how does that break up between the three of you? Uh, uh, yes. Yeah, so, company? I do I do a bit of the technical, a bit of the business, uh, a lot of the AI. Uh, Phil Gagnon is like 100 technical. And Michael Cronish helps on the business side uh, with, you know, we have a lot of relationships with uh, more traditional media. And so that's where he comes in. Oh, that's really exciting. And you said he's with, he was with Vice before? Yeah, he was with Vice. He's, wow. uh, he spent a long time as a VP with Vice, uh, mm -hmm. which, which was a very interesting story. He grew super big, super fast. And then, you know, yeah, it became um, very dependent on how algorithms uh, work. Right? That's, that's one of the problem with these businesses. If, uh, Facebook or YouTube changes their their algorithm overnight. Boom, your content plummets or something changes. Yeah. Oh, the the strength of the big of the big players, That's right? Crazy. Well, one thing that I and I kind of touched on the description. I love in your description how you described yourself or how that described yourself as a venture scientist looking for ideas that can improve society. Tell me what's a venture scientist and how do they improve society? Oh yeah, it's. Uh... <laughs> I, I fell in love with that term too. It's, I, I, I like that you're pointing it out. Um, I heard it from, um, um, it's a, an incubator in the UK and it's essentially an incubator that tries to take scientists out of universities and introduce them to entrepreneurship. And it fit me so well. And they're using that term venture scientists. And, and when I heard it, I was like, yes, this is exactly me. I've been searching. Like I'm not a serial entrepreneur. I'm not like a, like a pure scientist. And I really like that term because I've been bouncing uh, between academia and being a researcher and being an entrepreneur all my life. Mm -hmm. And I, I felt that both of these sides of, of me they combine well, they, they bring strength to one another. As a scientist, I think, you know, I, I, I can analyze stuff and I'm good with, uh, with the advances in technology. And as an entrepreneur, I can push them forward and turn them into products that people actually really want. So that's, uh, that's how I, I'm like, yep, this is, this is me. And I guess what, what is interesting about entrepreneurship for me is really the um, uh, innovation aspect, right? I have to be building something that doesn't exist yet in order to find that fulfilling. And 
since I'm building something that doesn't exist, like I might as well be doing it for the greater good. That's, you know, that's my driving force. That's why, that's why I'm in that. And yeah, uh, it takes a lot of energy. I'm sure you know, right? It takes a lot of energy to to uh, get up every day and build something that no one has seen before, and to fight all the forces that go against that. Um, and if I if I don't have that that inner fire of of knowing that I'm going to help maybe my kids, maybe like people out there who struggle with their um, digital life, you know, help them have have a better life. I don't think I would have the strength required in order to do all of that. I love it. And I, I can tell already you have, you have a nuclear power energy reactor inside <laughs> you, just, just the same as me. I, I can tell. So that's good. And you know what? I mean, this is kind of like algorithms for good. You know, I mean, you could maybe say with Waverly, that, that's kind of the feel too, right? Like we can do, we can do good. And I think that's fantastic. Yeah. Um, well, you know, I'm kind, of, I'm kind of interested because you went from, you know, uh, from University of Montreal um, and UBC we'll talk about. And then did you go straight from there to Google? Uh, actually, that's where, where I can say I bounced. I, I did like a, a master degree. Then I worked in, uh, as an industrial researcher and in the video game industry. Then I went back to do a PhD. Then mm-hmm. you know, I, during my PhD, I worked as a consultant because some open source project I did became very popular. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, okay, I'm going to become a prof. That was my, my idea. Wow. going to find a job in a university and I couldn't. And I'm like, okay, well, in that case, I'm going to go to Google. <laughs> and it, it took me a while, but I, I got in and loved it. It was a, it's a great, great place for a technologist like myself to learn about how the best things are, are built. Um, mm. I'm not sure I would like it that much today. It has changed a lot since I was there, but um, yeah, it, it was a really good place to be. But for me, it was essentially a place to be while I waited to find the next, the next entrepreneurial thing. stuff. Exactly. And it, for me, it was Element AI and now Waverly. Fantastic. Well, when you were with Google, were you, does Google have a Montreal office? Yeah, it's a, it's a very small. Well, now it, it's grown a bit. It was very, very small back then. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I had been in Vancouver for three years and uh, mm-hmm. I, you know, I had young kids. I wanted to come back for them to be close to their grandparents and all of that. Sure. And yeah, that's why. Uh, well, very back. cool. Well, well, I mean, when you go from academia to Google, you kind of like, I've done Google's campuses. I've had the tours down, down the valley in, in New York, other places. It feels like a campus. Like it has that university so feel. True. When you said, you know, Element AI or one of the next like Waverly, do you try to go for that feel or is it too expensive? To, to keep that up because wow. that is a very expensive thing to to, yeah. to, to, uh, to to contain. Yeah, you're right. It's like a university campus, but but with free food, which is, you know, this is how they get them all. <laughs> you just put free food out there and, you know, they all come plucking. Um, yeah, it's a very expensive thing to build. I was at Element AI. We definitely tried to do a bit of that. I think uh, it's, it's rooted in this belief that if you go for the very, very best talent, you, you can build something that is uh, significantly different than any of your competitors. And that's how Google believes for sure. And I think all of the big tech companies think like that. And by building these crazy campuses there, it's part of the package they offer. And you know, especially back in the days when they built it, it was one of the most requested feature. It was easy to get people when you had that. Um, 
with, Waver, uh, with, with Element AI, we tried to do a bit of that. We felt that there was this shortage in talent in AI, and we, we wanted to create the, the kind of environment that would draw these people in. Um, but it is very expensive. It's very hard to sustain as a startup. It has to be a huge part of your strategy. Um, so I would say with Waverly, it's it's the good old startup route, right? It's the good old product-based startup. As, well, I think, you know, you, I'm all for experimenting different models, right? I think, uh, you know, the, the, the crazy growth of Element AI had, had um, advantages and drawbacks, but at least it was experimenting with something. But with Waverly, what we're experimenting with is a product itself. It's not, you know, how do you build such a product? And yeah, so we are in a garage, very few of us. We all have our laptops and 100% cloud. It works really well. Uh, and truth be told, the team is happy. And they are because mm -hmm. they feel they're working on an important problem. Uh, I dig it. I mean, the, the, that, 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 that core team. I mean, when you have a good core team, it doesn't matter it, it, you know, if you, as long as you guys are all together communicating and working really well together, um, you don't need a big campus. You just, you just need the tools to get your job done and done right. Well, you know what, let's, I, I just want to step back because I'm very intrigued because obviously, you know, University of Montreal in Montreal, AI is, you know, it's, it's one of the, it's one of the world centers, you know, Toronto, Montreal, you guys are fighting as capitals of the world in AI, in my belief, which is a real honor for, for, you know, let's put the Canadian flag down and say that's amazing <laughs> yeah. and I love it. But UBC, my, you know, my, my stopping grounds, not quite known for the AI side of things. Mm -hmm. Why did you decide to come out here? Well, you know what, back in the days, AI just didn't work. It just like, Nobody was talking about it. It was a, a classic AI winter. Um, <laughs> in Montreal, I, I took Yosha Dengel's class. I, I mean, I was a good friend with him during my grad uh, school years here. Um, and I was a good friend with him because there were five of us in his class. <laughs> it's like it's crazy <laughs> to imagine that today, but, but there were like, I don't know, I'm, I'm making this up, but there were very few of us in his grad class. You know, people didn't think that neural networks worked. They, they thought it was some fatigious idea inspired by the brain and the real serious AI people were doing real maths. Um, and, but I love neural networks. And to me, I was like, hey, maybe, maybe these things will eventually work. And it was almost like a, a fairy dream, you know, to say, hey, these brain inspired machines are going to eventually be a thing that through which really AI comes. Mm -hmm. um, but when, when, you know, I, I actually didn't study directly in, in AI. I studied in computer graphics. Uh, my thing was, you know, okay. how do you get ro simulated robots to walk on two legs without mm -hmm. falling on their face in a physical environment? So it's it's a hard problem. There is definitely some AI in it, but it's you know I didn't need to be in uh, in Montreal to do that. Um, my postdoc uh, advisor, researcher, I worked with was at UBC, super, super solid guy. And, mm -hmm. um, and it's Vancouver. It's so nice. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I had spent a summer there during my PhD and I was like, oh yeah, I want to spend you know the rest of my life there. Only ended up spending three years, but um, yeah, it was, uh, it was a very, very good decision, both from the scientific standpoint UBC is, is very solid. And, and when you hear about these AI wars between Montreal and, and Toronto and UBC being left out, the truth is there's, there are very, very solid researchers in AI 
in, in all the big campuses. Uh, so I, you know, I would hire someone who graduated from UBC and AI overnight. Uh, the quality uh, of someone uh, who graduated in history and Russian, because uh, then maybe. <laughs> <I'm gonna go. laughs> well, <laughs> send your resume. I'll take a look. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm unemployable. That's why I found my own company. And you know what? There might be a lesson there to, to, to those who find themselves unemployable. Then you know what? Start your own thing. That's what Start that your own for me. thing. Well, you know, I was like, I was expecting, so I used to be the president of the UBC ski club. Okay. And mm -hmm. there were so many postdocs who were there just to ski. So that's kind of what I was expecting the answer to be was like, oh, you know, it's good to study, but yeah, you got the mountains, you know, but um, no, you maybe we I'm, ski I'm, together. I'm... I was totally doing that. <laughs> I was going, <laughs> go, going on the hills after, uh, after the, the work day, you know, it's so nice. Yeah. yeah. What, 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 what year was, were you at UBC? Uh, oh, I should have looked it up. <laughs> uh, speaking of resumes. Yeah, speaking of resumes. I, I will say around 2010. Uh, okay. Plus or minus uh, two years. <laughs> uh, you know, who's counting? Who's counting? Exactly. So, well, Rick, well you, 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 talk, you talked about Yashua Benjo, okay? About meeting him in your class. But what, what, what inspired you to start working together? Uh, can, you, can you tell me about how that, how that all started yeah. out? Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, like I, I, I always uh, stayed in touch with Yoshua when, uh, when I was at Google, I reached out to him. I was working on, on machine learning at Google itself. So I, I, we were always talking. And when I decided to, to go out of Google, uh, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm ready for uh, another venture or an, another uh, starting a company. But I didn't want to start my own at that point. I was like, oh, let me find something something out there that fits my, you know, my, my vision and um, my values. And Joshua um, is definitely a, a person who like we share, we have a lot of shared values. I mean, everything he does on the academic side, he does uh, with the best intentions. He really wants to, to help the world. And so I reached out to him and I'm like, hey, I think we connect on this and any big project you're aware of, and and he pointed me to Element AI, which was just a, you know, there it was just a seed. There was almost nothing, but there were uh, Jean-François Gagné, uh, Nicolas Chapadas, and Anne Martel who were working on it, and uh, I joined the three of them. It wasn't Element AI; it was like uh, company number X Y Z, and <laughs> we basically started shaping it. What would it be? How would it benefit from this rise and the success of uh, of neural networks and um, and yeah, the rest is history. Well, I, I, I did a, a little bit of research and, it's, and it seemed like you guys were doing everything at Element AI. Like it was, it was that's why I kind of talked about that Google campus feel because it did look like you're doing everything. What was, what was the main focus that you were working on there? Yeah, it definitely looked like that, didn't it? <laughs> it was one of our challenges, right? It was like, okay, we know that the latest advances in, uh, in AI are going to have impact uh, in the industry in a bunch of different industries. We, we know there will be some backing layers to all of that, some, some infrastructure that is going to be different than our classic infrastructure, classic cloud or classic uh, database systems that, that will be needed. And we, we wanted to find it. We had some ideas. We, you know, every, every neural network system has what, what's called an underlying representation of the world. Uh, we felt that these representations would become um, 
the key thing that would, people would exchange or would build their, their systems on. And we wanted to become the, the representation store. Okay? So how you would go to, to uh, Element AI and you would get all of that. So we seeked out to build something like this through a bunch of these, uh, these partnerships and these, uh, these projects with different partners. So yeah, it was, um, uh, but yeah, I would say uh, what you see there is a company looking, what you saw back then was a company looking for product market fit. How do you find product market fit in that world? And it's, uh, um, you see it at a smaller scale in, in every startup out there. It's just that oh, yeah. uh, we raised a lot of money and we had the, uh, the ability to deploy a, a crazy accelerated growth strategy thanks to that. Did you know, so I saw you were, you were in, you were in uh, Montreal and was it Korea was the other we were uh, we were in Montreal, Toronto. Mm -hmm. We were mm -hmm. in Korea and Singapore, uh, okay. and I think that's it. What, we, oh no, sorry, we had London, a London office. I was in charge of it, so I should remember. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that, that small little city somewhere yeah, over in the UK. Yeah. <laughs> well, what 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 made, what made you decide to go into these foreign cities? Um. Yeah, opportunities for us, it, it was mostly like we had really good partners in these different places and we went there for that. So it wasn't it wasn't talent, it was on the corporate business uh, side? or uh, Definitely a mix of both. For example, London has crazy talent in AI, so mm -hmm. it was definitely part of our reasoning there. Makes sense, makes sense. So ServiceNow, um, which is a, a very large company, acquired Element AI. And um, can you tell me, like... I, I I love these 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 acquisition agent stories because I always like to know how the relationship started. Like, did you work with them prior and have this relationship, or did it just come out of the blue? Like, how did that happen? Yeah, unfortunately, I can't speak to it very much because I was already um, I, I I had a, a very a small role as a, a advisor, scientific advisor at Element AI for a year before the transaction happened. I mm -hmm. um, so I was. I, I didn't know anything about it. I learned it at the same time as uh, as you did, as everybody oh, else. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. Okay. So, um, yeah, I was uh, I I was less involved in there, so I can't speak to it at all, actually. Fair enough, then. Well, then let's just say you know what it's it's nice that uh, ServiceNow um, you know saw saw the great value in it, and uh, um, it's it's you know I I understand the talent is just you know world class, so I I totally dig that. That I can um, well, speak to. I mean, the people we definitely. have. But like I worked with there, uh, yeah, I would uh, I would work with them again any day. Yeah, well, I love. I mean, I still I, I didn't know a um, couple couple of years ago there was this great video I saw. It was out of the UK about about AI. It was comparing the world's AI, and you know, it's talking about China, it's talking about Russia, it's talking about the states, and then it talked about the special forces, and that's when it talked about the Canadian players. And I had no idea at that time. I mean, it was in the infancy, I mean, 2015, 2016, you know, it's, it's just, you know, the neural networks are really just starting to realize, as you said, hey, this works and it works really well, um, you know, and I just to hear some of these names and to know that, you know, not only are you one of them, but playing with them, it must be a, a real honor to be part of that whole, uh, you know, power system, let's just say. Um, well, well, tell me, what was the biggest lesson learned from Element AI then? Yeah, I, for me, it was, uh, I... I think I thrive in the kind of uh, like product driven startup, right? You know, I'm, I'm uh, as an entrepreneur, I'm definitely a product person. I care about building something people really, really want connecting to, to my users, 
why do why do you like it what do you like about it what do you not like about it let's talk uh product and and that was my biggest lesson is yeah if i like that's how i should build my next uh my next company um it you know as i was saying at the beginning i think the strategy of element ai makes and made a lot of sense because the talent was so rare and it was a uh, it was the move needed but uh i'm i'm definitely a product uh driven founder well that's i think that's so interesting because i mean with the algorithms and everything it's 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 you're still asking your customers what do you think is this good like testing the assumptions as opposed to hey algorithms just get better and figure out what the person is so is is that is the algorithm more important is the 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 user more important uh, well, first time I get that question, but it's it's a really really good one. Um, you know, <laughs> the way algorithms are built today, I would say you still have to go to the person because it it takes such a shallow perspective of who you are. Uh, it you know it looks at your clicks, at the speed at which you scroll, at a bunch of things that that are very weak at defining you. Mm-hmm. So you you still have to go back to the people and ask them what do you actually really want, and that's why you see these products popping up all, all the time. These new products, these new platforms, um, they answer a problem that the algorithm itself wasn't able to solve. Um, but that's actually what Waverly is is about. It's about okay, if these algorithms are bad at understanding what we we really want, can we build different algorithms that are better at that? And and our answer is maybe, but if we do this, we will have, we will need two things. First, we will need a way for people to express what they want, which is for us natural language. And two, we will need to accept that our products have more friction in them than traditional products. Because the current way in which you build product, you, you never ask the user anything. And anytime you ask a user to stop and think is a moment at which you could drop your app. That's how most product designers think. But the problem with that is how are they going to stop, think, and tell you what they really want if you don't give them the space for this? So at the core of Waverly, there is this concept that friction isn't inherently bad. You have to use it well at the right moment. You have to ask the, like questions and to base your answers on that. But we take the view that trying to reduce, like to eliminate all of the friction is going to lead to products that understand their users in a very shallow way. Mm, I love that. I love that. I mean, I spend a lot of time trying to explain to customers or our clients because we, we make software, but I, I try to explain to them that doing prototyping is so important because you're testing assumptions before you're committing zeros and ones. And it's so much easier to pivot there. And so, you know, even in the algorithm world, it's really important, I suppose, to test out those assumptions in a, kind of like a low definition, low, low, low fi way of doing it, get the assumptions and then resource in and, you know, build up. Is that, is that, that's a fair assumption in that? Yes. And I think uh, yeah, that that's what we're realizing also, right? We started the first version of Waverly in order to, to do anything with it. You had to write like three paragraphs in order to describe. And, and our algorithm was crunching all of this and understanding what you expressed. But like users were like, what? I don't get anything out of your app until I've re- written these three paragraphs that describe why I'm really, really passionate about golf. And like, yep, yeah, that's how it works. <laughs> and so the response was like, yeah, nah, maybe not, right? And and this is how we real where where we realized that we needed something a bit like rapid prototyping inside Waverly. We need to be able to give people something, even if 
they don't start right away with this this very long paragraph. We call them waves, you know, when these long paragraphs that describe your experience. So um, yeah, we went back to the drawing board and the, the new version of Waverly feels a lot more like, yeah, you onboard it like any app, you you don't have to write anything, you start, but, but slowly it draws you in. And eventually you're like, hey, maybe I could spend some time to express what I want, design my own algorithm, my own wave inside of Waverly. Um, and uh, yeah, I draw a lot of parallel with the process you describe of, you know, telling you, telling your customer, yeah, we could build a full app, uh, but it will be the wrong app and it will cost you that much. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, we met, we met at a C100 event, a virtual one. Unfortunately, mm -hmm. I can't wait to get back down to one of either the San Francisco or New York or even London. I mean, they're, they're really doubling down on, uh, I saw on that. multiple places. Um, how does the C100 for you fit into, fit into your goals? Um, yeah, it's, uh, for, for me, it's just, it's a super good initiative to connect uh, the Canadian technical system to the Valley, right? Mm -hmm. um, I, I know the vibe there, you know, I, I, when I was at Google, I used to spend like, I don't know, like a couple of months a year there uh, every year. And it's hard being away from that and building a, like the kind of tech company that, that uh, aspires to transform the way we build uh, almost like all, all the platforms we have out there. So. Like it was super important for me to feel that I'm building a company that is connected to that pulse, and I think that C100 does a really good job at uh, at connecting, at keeping Canadian entrepreneur connected to to the pulse of the valley. Uh, do, do you do the same thing I do with every like I've do, I've done a bunch of events prior to the pandemic and and also you know part of the the Slack channel the secret Slack channel you see my quotes and all that and <laughs> you know with each new person that comes on there I just do this wow they're Canadian too like wow, I'm connected to this person. And you reach out and they're really happy to be part of the group. I mean, you know, I should actually say for the C100, I mean, the original vision, I should probably describe what that is so we're not using our own internal talk here. That's right. Um, the C100, originally the vision uh, was for the um, 100 top executives in the United States or the Valley who are Canadian, who can, you know, help out, um, help out other Canadian companies, especially young startups that are, that are trying to blossom and move into the Valley because of the original model was of course you build a product, you get some traction, you take investment, you move to the Valley. Yeah. Um, and this was a body, you know, and they had their 48 hours in the Valley, which I've been a part of, um, I, not as a product, but as an observer. And it's honestly fantastic to see the, the energy of helping and everything um, and, and the good intentions. Um, but it's definitely expanded. I think it's also come to a realization and this is something that, you know, is, is just obvious now. You don't need to be in the Valley. Like, you know, back in the day, when you took that money and you had to move to the Valley, um, you didn't have a choice. You know, I'll, I'll use Grammarly as like people don't know Grammarly as a Canadian company, for example, originally out of Toronto, but they had to move to the Valley. That was about seven years ago. But now you can stay in Montreal. You can stay in Vancouver. You can have you have a whole support network around you. And in fact, it might be easier because the talent's cheaper and, 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 and just as good, if not better, yeah. um, because immigration is so much easier. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that whole C100 spirit is super alive um but i just can't wait to you know i i will we'll cheers uh you know a, a beer or whatever it is soon i hope together yeah 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 but i agree with you i think you can build amazing tech company outside of that and i think uh i'm meeting vcs uh very regularly who believe the same right actually <laughs> some of them like you said think that it's easier to build a great tech startup 
because you can find outside of the valley because you can find talent more easily, great talent more easily. Um, uh, yeah, totally agree with that. Uh, I, you know, we don't have, uh, we're not planning on moving there. Um, so yeah, let's build great Canadian company. But I think what, what the Valley got right is, is this ethos of, you know, great technology companies are built by, by great technologists. You have the respect for, for that. And, uh, that's, uh, and, and yeah. And then they have this crazy network of, of investors and, and all of that that you need to be connected to. Completely. But I would almost say, you know, besides the network of investors, which which I think, um, you know, with digital connections now, we can we can we can still form those relationships. I think, you know, personal is still super important. Mm -hmm. um, but I still think the Valley is a philosophy. And I think that mm -hmm. philosophy has infected other cities now and they That's want to be like it, but with their own flavor. And I think yeah. that, you know, the, the, I'm not going to look down on you. I'm going to question what you're doing and be curious and I'm mm -hmm. going to support you. I might not make money off it. I'm not going to be this competitive person because I want to see you win. And I think that's what we have in Canada because it's, 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 it's an energy of support, which, which yeah. I love. You know? I, I really like how you describe it. And sometimes, you know, I, I live through this clash of worlds where I meet some investor from like, from a different world, right? Who doesn't share that philosophy. And for me, it's just a big clash. It feels like, oh, wait, we're in this, this, this crazy, um, I don't know, like this winner takes all mindset instead of this collaborative mindset. And like, oh, I'm not used to that anymore. That's not how, and uh, yeah, the value philosophy works. Yeah. Do, do you know one of the best lessons I ever had in business? And it's, it's such a funny thing because uh, my, dad, my dad used to work for, for, for Air Canada. And he uh, handled a lot of the, the tour companies. And when the first SARS outbreak broke out, um, I just happened to be having dinner with him and one of his uh, one of his client partners in in Chinatown in Vancouver, um, one of the, the you know the big restaurants. And as we're eating, he all of a sudden said, um, "I just have five ten minutes of a meeting. I just have to do it." And next thing I know, he's sitting at a table, and it's all the other. Um, Asian focused travel agencies and they all just got together, which, you know, is hyper competitive and SARS obviously created massive problems in travel mm -hmm. between Asia and, and Canada. And he said, well, you know what? We all just decided it took us 10 minutes. We all decided that I'm going to close my shop for a week. He's going to close it the next week. They are going to close it the next week and we're not going to compete with each other. We're all going to survive through this. And I, you know, I was still in university and it just made me go, yeah, you know what? Let's be frenemies. Let's support mm -hmm. each other so mm -hmm. that we get through this. We all have families you know what? Oh, I took $200 out of their pocket, you know, over a week by doing it. No one wins that way. And that was yeah. like my big aha moment in business where I thought, nah, we can be supportive. We can all win together. Yeah. Um, so I'm glad I went to that dinner and uh, I'm pretty sure the, uh, the, the hot and sour soup was darn good too. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, 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 you know what? I mean, I've got an AI expert here, so I got to ask one question and this is off the table, but like, you know, off the, the, the level of questions, if I got to ask, do we have to be afraid of the robots or when do we have to be afraid <laughs> of the killer robots? Oh yeah. You're, you're, yeah. Okay. Two things. Uh, I'm, I'm one of the, like, despite the fact that I'm an AI, I'm one of the probably most um, skeptic uh, AI expert out there. Uh, I, but second thing, I'm very often wrong. <laughs> oh, no, please don't be. <laughs> so 
Uh, yeah, yeah. I, like I very often, you remember when uh, AlphaGo uh, beat the Korean Go master? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was I was at Google back then, and Google was uh, at acquired DeepMind, and it was a DeepMind mm -hmm. rope. Like AlphaGo was a DeepMind product, and I I bet against my boss, and I told him uh -oh. that. The guy is gonna win. The robot is gonna lose, and it's like, yeah, I lost money that day. <laughs> <laughs> I was betting against my employer. See that—that's mm -hmm. you know. Um, so I'm very often wrong, but I—I I still highly doubt that we have to fear the robots uh, with the current, the current generation of AI. Um, my reason is—is is, you know, it's it's simple, and everybody's gonna give you a different answer, but. I, I think that whenever we find something in AI, something new that works, um, we always think it's the last. It's finally we found the last straw. It's, it's, it's the last thing we needed in order to build a system that has the flexibility of human brains. I, like, don't get me wrong. I think we will build such, such a system. I don't think there's nothing special or in the human brain that cannot be reproduced in a machine. But... Mm -hmm. um, but I, I think we are being very naive whenever we find something at thinking this is the last big thing that we were missing. And right now, I like, yes, what we've done is able to accomplish create, like really, really powerful um, tasks that we weren't able to do before, recognizing objects, uh, speaking with the, uh, with the voice of a human, things like that. But it, it's still lacking in very important aspect, which is, they're really bad at generalizing. You can, you can train a system to be really good at Go. It won't be able to play chess at all, right? Mm -hmm. Humans are not like that. And we've been, like, as researchers, we've been trying to make progress on that, the front of generalization for the last uh, 10 years since deep learning started to work. And we haven't made, we've made some progress, but it feels like we're still missing something. So my hunch is, We'll need to find something else before we can reach what, what uh, scientists call AGI, artificial general intelligence. But it's just a hunch. You ask uh, Demis Hassabis at uh, at DeepMind, he will, you know, he will tell you that uh, that no way we're like three years away from AGI. So it depends on who you ask. <laughs> well, I won't I won't bet with you then. How about, how about we'll just, we'll just <laughs> yeah, leave, leave that one off the table? It like oh. that. Well, one thing I've been reading about is some some nations these days are actually nationalizing algorithms. Like they're actually saying, no, we can't export it. Mm -hmm. Is that something we should be looking at? Or is that like totally go against the grain of science? Yeah, I have a, an issue. Like, yeah, I, I think you're you're nailing it. For me, um, I, I think we're better off sharing what we what we find as scientists, at least, you know, for, for the fundamental research aspect. Uh, for sure, there will be ge geopolitical uh, issues with it. I'm not necessarily confident enough or competent enough to talk about how we should handle that. But I feel like if you if you are too harsh or you're you're just like stopping any collaboration, you'll be worse off in the long run because you won't you won't benefit from what's going out on outside. Yeah, I agree. A network in isolation is not a network. You know, it no, one, no, work, one, exactly. no one benefits from it. Um, well, um, you know what? Can you share this? This the theme again of, of, of afternoon teas is to you know talk to wonderful uh, entrepreneurs like yourself, uh, Canadian ones, in order to expedite that next generation of Canadian startups. Um, so, can you share maybe a Canadian entrepreneurial star or founder that you look up to or that you think you need to know about, or that we, the listener, needs to know about? Uh... 
there are a bunch of people I could I could give as example, but I'd like to to give the name of a very small startup I interacted with last year when I was doing a Founder Fuel. Um, it's called Galia. Uh, the CEO is Guillaume Parent. And what Galia is trying to do, which is a fascinating idea, they're trying to um, to take art that people that random people do everywhere like there's other people who love to paint and love to do art and they want to make it live more instead of like you just giving it to your mother or keeping it in your basement they're trying to get it out there so uh post it in coffee shops and so they're building this app and this network of people who, who want to like to post their uh, their art and I just like the vibe of that company and, and uh, the energy of Guillaume when he, he, he talks about his mission, what he's trying to accomplish. And, and for me, it's just, uh, it really is what maybe some people call the creator economy could be about, like empowering these people who have a really strong passion to live that, that passion more and, and, and a more fulfilling way. So super inspiring uh, Canadian startup, feels very Canadian, and, and its I love it. uh, values and the way it does things. So yeah, you might want to check out Galia. Galia, and it's Guillaume Perron? Guillaume Perron. Perfect, perfect. Um, I, when I was going to University of Laval, I lived in uh, Pavillon Perron. So I guess that's a, a very common, a common and a good name then. Yeah. Um, well, excellent. Well, you've, you've, you've done a journey, you know, Google, Element AI, Waverly, and all the university years in between. Um, can you share one piece of advice for that, uh, you know, for that, that Canadian founder, the young Canadian um, founder? Yes. Uh, I, you know, you've heard all of the advice. Okay, That's my first, my mm -hmm. first thing. If, yeah. if you're a founder, you've heard a lot of the advice, but there is one uh, you've heard that, you know, you should measure things, you should, you know, but there's one that I think I give that few people give is don't fall in love with your metrics. Don't, um, you know, measure everything. Be, be aware that, that you, you need to, uh, to track how stuff goes, but don't fall in love with, with anything you measure because there's a big danger there. Uh, the economists call it good hearts law. And the problem with it is as soon as you measure something and you start to incentivize it because you feel it, it's connected to what you want to eventually accomplish, the connection drops and, and it becomes the wrong thing, uh, the wrong thing to optimize for. So it like it happened to me a bunch of time through my career. You know, at Google, we optimized for clicks on links, and eventually people invite, invented clickbait, and and this didn't work anymore. But if you were in love with the metric, you could be blind to the fact that it's stuck to be the right thing to measure. So I would say my advice to you is measure everything, but don't fall in love with what you measure. Go back to the drawing board regularly, and that's probably how you can you can build a, a great a great product centric business. That is fantastic advice. You know what, for, for the, for the first episode of season three, I think we got the golden advice for the year already and it just started. <laughs> so hey, Philippe, thank, thank you so much um, for, for joining us today. It was so much fun. Uh, you know, um, well, j'espère que la prochaine fois, on fera l'interview en français. Ça me ferait plaisir, Chris. Je t'inviterai peut-être sur mon podcast. 
you, you'll see that I've been living in uh, Western Canada for way too long. <laughs> That's all um, right. But it's definitely, I mean, everything in Montreal is in my heart. And, uh, you know, I, I look forward to hopefully, uh, you know, I can uh, have a tea with you over there at some point because I'd, I'd really I'd really enjoy that. Um, but thank you for joining us today and, and for sharing, you know, all of your, your, your journey and lessons and, and learnings. And uh, um, they're really of value uh, to the listeners. So I, I really appreciate uh, everything you've done with us today. You're very welcome, Chris. Thanks for having me. Ahoy, afternoon tea listeners. If you got this far, I assume you liked this episode, and that is awesome. Thank you. In such a case, please rate and review Afternoon Tea Podcast and subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your feeds from. Afternoon Tea is a podcast with a goal to share the stories of Canada's successful tech entrepreneurs in order to prepare the next wave of founders. We do have some great guests lined up for future episodes, but we would love to hear your thoughts too. Please do let us know who you think should be on the show. You can do so by emailing me at podcast at ttt.studio. That is P-O-D-C-A-S-T at T-T-T, that is three T's, dot studio. You will notice there is no dot com because we are that sophisticated. Furthermore, you can find us at social media at T-T-T underscore studios. I look forward to chatting with you soon.